0: Hello, and welcome to Ben Yeo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. What are the best policy ideas to advance progress? On this episode, I speak to Alec Stapp. Alec is co-CEO and co-founder for the Institute for Progress. We speak on why now is the moment for progress policies, what we don't understand about the science of science or meta-science, and the advantages of an internet-first think tank. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. Thank you. Be well. Hey, everyone. I'm super excited to be chatting with Alec Stapp. Alec is the co-founder and co-CEO of the Institute for Progress. The IFP is dedicated to accelerating scientific, technological and industrial progress while safeguarding humanity's future. It's nonpartisan, and I view the organization as one leading cluster in the field of understanding and promoting human progress. Alec and co founder Caleb Watney are supported by prominent progress thinkers such as Tyler Cowan and Patrick Collinson. Alec, welcome. Thanks for having me, then. First, congratulations in building something new. One criticism I hear is that we're not creating enough new institutions or new big things like new types of cities or new types of university and building things has become hard. But your institute, I guess, is a form of rebuttal to that, even while you're concerned about potentially slowing progress. So on the worry and risk side, um, are we really stagnating? There are some challenges in productivity growth, but there still seems to be lots of progress too, for instance, in software and biotech. So starting, what are you most worried about and what's your diagnosis of the problem?
1: Yeah, so uh, yeah, again, thanks for having me. Um, really good questions. I think start off, I would say, well, one, you mentioned there's still, there's definitely been a lot of innovation in software for the last 50 years, um, and especially the last 30 years since the advent of the internet um, has really exploded. And so that's been the one, I would say, exception of our economy, where you definitely are seeing tons of progress and innovation. Um, at a really rapid clip. Biotech seems more recent to me. Um, So obviously the mRNA vaccines, um, promising stuff with CRISPR or genetic sequencing, um, we're really at the advent of that. I think we're on the cusp of a biotech revolution and we're seeing some of the fruits of that. Um, That's really more prospective than retrospective in terms of a a potential revolution there. Uh, And then where are we seeing just still stagnation with... (laughs) not much hope in sight and hopefully it will change. It's really building things in the real world. Um, In the U.S. context at least, but this is true in in many developed countries around the world, um, construction productivity has been stagnant or falling for the last 50 years in terms of uh, are we actually building more with a a given set of inputs um, in terms of physical structures. Uh, In the U.S. context is often, a couple of the main candidates uh, blocking new construction are actually environmental laws. Um, And often they're not substantive in nature, they're just about process oriented. So um, so for example, the National Environmental Policy Act um, requires really long uh, and costly environmental impact statements and environmental impact reviews. And again, it's not substantive, like if they find this, they definitely won't allow you to build, it's just that you have to in detail lay out all the potential impacts. And then bad actors often, so NIMBY, not environmentalists, but NIMBYs who don't want building near them or want to block a project for another reason, exploit and leverage these environmental process protection laws um, to slow down projects or veto them in the, in the long run. Um, and so that's that's slowing down innovation in green tech. We can't build uh, large solar farms, wind farms. Um, we're not close to building many nuclear sites, but nuclear has often hit the same problems. Um, no one wants the waste or even the power plant near them. Um, so I think in the physical realm, and this is why it's cool that we're building a new think tank, but we're also, it's much easier for us. It's a currently a four person team with a, an office, a shared space in DC. We're not encountering many of these same really hard problems of like, if you wanna build a large structure in the physical environment, um, how do you get past all the veto points that could stop you from doing that? And that's the, the part that I'm really most concerned about.
0: So that brings to mind a, a, a couple of kind of recent examples particularly in the US context, but we see it all around Europe and developed world. In fact, even in some parts of, Um, developing world as well. Um, So I read an article, I think Ezra Klein talked about it, but it's essentially these outside cafe restaurant structures, I think, in San Francisco and California. And during the pandemic, uh, they popped up quite quickly and people were allowed to build them. And generally, everyone was quite happy because you had somewhere to sit outside and restaurants got more uh, income. And then they said, well, let's not make this temporary. Let's try and make this permanent because everyone thinks it's a good idea. And then they went around and did a sort of stakeholder exercise because you want to have input and because everyone was defending their uh, input you got kind of in specific quite a reasonable proposal say from the fire department saying well if there's a fire on the second floor of this building then you only need it to be a certain height uh, and therefore this is what we would propose for our regulations and as you went around each kind of stakeholder you've got more and more of these veto points or these pain points such that when the legislation came round, they were so onerous that most restaurant owners said, well, either we can't do that or our current structure is not suitable or it cost us so much that the whole idea uh, falls apart. And that seems to be like a, a little, you know, a tiny example of, of this type of thing. Um, well, apart from a better understanding of the holistic trade offs and that, where could policy, or where could we really unpick something like that, which actually has broad support from most of the stakeholders involved, it's just a question of, of of trying to get it through.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great example. Yeah, these little parklets, I think they're called, at least in D.C. Um, I've eaten, I mean, these restaurants are very pleasant, especially during COVID when you needed, indoor dining was much more dangerous. Um, yeah, it seems like this is, again, the kind of low-hanging fruit that, like, most people like this stuff, why can't we get this built or get this done? Um, I think. The key thing here, and this applies to housing as well and many we other types of construction, is that we have the wrong level of decision making for the particular project. So um, I'll use housing as an example, but a lot of this would apply to the, the, these outdoor restaurant spaces as well. Um, in the U.S., most housing decisions are made in terms of zoning regulations are made at the municipal level um, and uh, and often even neighborhood level. And the the key problem there is that when you have the the zoning meeting uh, with the local council members, people who come to those meetings to voice their opinion on a new project are a tiny, tiny fraction of the community, like less than 1%. And it's, there's a kind of selection effect here where it's like, what kind of people have the time and resources to attend these meetings? Often it's retirees. People are very old and have a lot of free time on their hands. Um, And it's people who are highly invested. So it's incumbent homeowners. It's not a renter from a neighboring town who might move to that new uh, multifamily housing complex if it were to be built. Um, and so there's an incumbent bias effect. There's a who has free time on their hands effect. And then it's just who's the most vocal and the loudest. And it's people who are very afraid of change and don't want the noise from new construction. They don't want to lose their parking spot on the street. They don't want more traffic just in general. And they, and they want just things to be the way they were when they bought their house, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And I think that really distorts the process so people say like, oh, wh- what's more uh, democratic? What, you know, what's a better example of participatory democracy than a local ca- town council meeting where individuals come and voice their opinions? And I think that's a highly distorted view of democracy um, because it's ignoring the interests of the vast majority of people in that area or in other areas who might want to move there and participate in that community. And so the two options here I think are moving the decision to a much higher level of government, or to a much lower level of government, and and then by lower level of government, I mean like to the block level for an individual town block. Um, this is this is the streets votes ideas from our friends in the UK. John Myers, some of your listeners might be familiar with this. Um, but the idea there is basically like if you let each individual city block vote on how they're being zoned, you get this nice game theory situation where people realize like, you know, I like the way my house is and where I'm living, but if we upzone our individual city block. We could all make a lot of money for the first people, first block in this area to upzone, and so then you you change the incentive effect of, okay, the people who do vote to upzone would make a lot of money by doing so, and so you get a lot more of uh, um, increases in zoning. Alternatively, you can raise the decision in the U.S. context at least from the city level or neighborhood level up to the state level. So at the state level, policymakers have different incentives. They're thinking about aggregate goal growth. They're thinking about spillovers. Um, they're thinking about You know, if there's a housing cost problem in one city, but not in others, how do we, you know, collectively at the state level balance those incentives and balance those costs and benefits? And so you get much uh, more rational or cost benefit oriented policy at a higher level because the elected officials at that level need to consider more stakeholders and more trade offs than a local town council member who is being yelled at by a 75 year old person who's been a homeowner for 20 years in the neighborhood. Um, So that applies to these parklets that. As your client writes about um, as well, it's the it, people who show up to those meetings are also upset about things changing in their neighborhood, um, but it doesn't consider all the diffuse benefits that new projects like that can bring.
0: Sure, and there's been quite a lot of interest in this street plans uh, idea here in the UK and similar. And I think Ben Southwood has, has written about this. And actually, it riffs on some earlier ideas on planning about having sort of street level code. So if everyone agrees that a block can look like this, and you can have several kind of code plans, then if it looks similar to this and the block votes on it, then, then maybe we can get uh, something through, although there's also been pushback on whether uh, on whether it would really work or not. Uh, and I can see that on the housing level, but it's interesting that you also talk about potentially going up a level, either a state or a more uh, centralized uh, idea in some ways. And I was reading uh, today, uh, I think uh, Alex Tabarrok has mentioned this Wall Street Journal article, which is essentially the story of trying to get this power cable, I think, from Quebec to Boston. And Quebec is very rich in hydropower. Uh, Boston could do with this uh, power cable. And it's taken 17 years and they haven't got very far. And and some of it is this environmental law. I think there's rare butterflies and and rare fish and and things uh, like that Um, which again you know looking at the trade-offs there were also um, you could call them bad actors but actors in uh, acting in their own self-interest so it's no good for them for them there to be so I think there was um, uh, something like another power plant maybe it was a nuclear power plant there or other business interests where it wasn't going to be very good for them even though it could be better uh, better for that Um, and I wonder then in that case going down to a local level wouldn't probably wouldn't really solve uh, that also this is sort of transnational Uh, but do you think going to a higher level and saying well actually look someone can kind of cut through all of that to to do it and would you need to repeal quite a lot of laws or uh, how could you actually work around such a problem
1: yeah I agree yeah one it's taking it in, in these kind of transnational issues it's taking it to the policy decision making, taking it to the national level, and saying this is in our national strategic interest. We have, you know, national goals and and global goals around climate change and getting more clean energy um, transmitted across the country. And so, this is why we kind of need to um, consider trade offs across jurisdictions, local jurisdictions, and you know, in, in a sense, it's almost like picking winners and losers. It's saying that you know this is going to benefit the entire country in a more diffuse way. And so some local interests need to be um, overruled by a higher level of government. Um, but I think a good thing here that as you were describing this question, I think i think we heard of this project, you're talking about the hydroelectric uh, transmission lines. I often think of Power um, Broker, Robert Caro is a pretty formative book for me in thinking about these types of issues, describing Robert Moses in the earlier part of the 20th century in New York, all the things he built. Like if you wanted to like, return to an era of building in the United States like Robert Moses who like would kind of be your guy of like actually building roads, bridges, tunnels, um all sorts of massive infrastructure projects. But in that book it's also like a, it's a mix of a hopeful tale and also a cautionary tale because Robert Moses like steamrolled uh minority groups. Most of these like bridges and stuff were put through like um black and brown communities without their input and it was much more rarely done in rich, rich affluent white communities in New York at the time. And so there was really, that, that was, again, the more of an anti-democratic, he's not gonna take the input of the poor or lower classes. Um, and I think what we're seeing here is like, the US policy competition has kind of overshot the mark. So now we're, as a much richer society and a much more egalitarian society than maybe 80 years ago, we've become too concerned about respecting every single minority interest in any particular area. Minority, I mean like the, the smallest group. Um, and now everyone's terrified and we've, we've implemented all these process safeguards to make sure that we're hearing every element of the community's input, but then they're being exploited by incumbent interests, by um, frontiers and others who have economic interest in keeping things the way they are um, and are biased against change um, to exploit those processes. And so I think, you know, we, we were, before maybe 80 years ago, we weren't listening enough to community input and we were kind of steamrolling people in an inappropriate way. But now we're so scared and we've built so many, so many quote unquote safeguards into the process, we don't end up building anything. And so we need to like kind of roll it back a bit and find that, that nice middle ground of, can we still do big projects? Can we try to minimize harms to certain communities, but still recognize that we need we have big problems we need to solve and big problems involve building big things.
0: And do you think that is tractable as you would put it in your framework or feasible because whatever you are, whether you're a minority group, it, Groups are very reluctant, any group is very reluctant to give up power. And it seems if you look at legislation in in Europe or in in the US, it's been very hard to roll back. Um, And actually you've had some governments who've said, oh, let's try and roll back some of these rules and laws and they actually haven't got very far. Yeah, no,
1: this is definitely one of the tougher issues. Um, And you'll notice that uh, for our think tank, we try to work on issues that are important tractable and neglected. So you mentioned tractability here. Um, For our first three issues for our think tank, we picked meta science. So like, how do we get more breakthrough research, more diversification and experimentation and research for science policy. Um, Immigration with a particular focus on high skilled immigration and biosecurity. So how do we stop future pandemics? And so the reason we didn't start with something like urbanism or, you know, housing and transportation is because we do believe it's a bit of a harder problem. And so um, eventually we'll branch out into that. But we think that it's, while extremely important, it's, we don't yet have a clear path on tractability. And so um, that's why we didn't pick it as one of our first three areas, but we will eventually work on it as we find more solutions that we think might be tractable.
0: That makes a lot of sense. And so rolling back one, your sort of founding mission statement essay cites this framework influenced by the effective altruist movement, which I sort of I paraphrase is looking at very impactful areas, but also areas that are unresearched and tractable is in politically feasible or, or actually, uh, you know, potentially possible to do. Um, so with that in case, maybe of these three areas that you um, highlight, uh, perhaps you want to talk about why you're looking at those areas, maybe meta science, this science of science, or an understanding of, of how we make uh, progress. And I think in the essay, you've suggested that potentially the incentives are not working as well as they could and that organizations are are perhaps not in the best structures, or uh, at least there haven't been any more new structures within the institutions or organizations uh, looking at it. Uh, So maybe what's your diagnosis of the the problem here in terms of the science of science, and how do you think we might make some progress?
1: Yeah, I think this is a a case of a classic, like really for science funding institutions, they just become quite sclerotic. And so it's hard for any institution that's been around for decades and decades and decades um, to maintain a similar level of output or impact, especially in, a, in areas like science that often have diminish- naturally have diminishing returns. And so you got you have to get very creative and experimental to get bigger breakthroughs. Um, and so I'm thinking of obviously like NIH, NSF, I mean, collectively the US federal government is the largest funder of basic R&D in the world. Um, and the military also funds lots, lots of basic R&D. And so I think the key problem here is that uh, funders again, through processes, through these long application process, through committees determining who wins grants for certain projects. Um, and a crazy statistic is that primary investigators in the United States, researchers, spend about 45% of their time on documentation like this and preparing applications, and which is not you know, doing science per se. And so that's a huge waste of like some of our most talented scientists and researchers, um, it's a waste of their time. And two, I would say that anytime you have this level of process and, and bureaucratization set up, there's a chance that it's worth it. There's a chance that like, this actually helps us pick, pick better projects and you need to spend the time to, to sort through them to make sure you're funding the right stuff. But we don't actually have evidence that that's true. And this is what meta-science is all about. It's about saying, let's study the process. Let's make sure that if we're spending almost half of our time on you know, how we pick certain projects and how we, fund, how we fund them, that we're doing that optimally or that actually it's worth the juice is worth a squeeze. And so, um, for example, one piece of legislation that we're, a provision we're trying to put into forthcoming legislation is about a scientific lottery. And the idea would be a second chance lottery of a, if you've applied to get a grant with the NSF, for example, and you get denied. Well, you take all the den- denied applications, put them in a pot, run a lottery, fund a certain small portion of them. And then over a longer time horizon compare how impactful that research was versus the research that you picked through your process in the first round of funding. And if it turns out, and this has happened in New Zealand and other countries that have tried this, that the impact is roughly similar for the second chance lottery winners and the first round process winners, then the question, then you, then you have to ask yourself like, what was the process getting us that a lottery couldn't by picking by random chance? If they clear some certain like minimum threshold of quality. Um, so that's what, kind of what we're advocating here is that we need much more experimentation. We need much, many more, new institutions. Um, for example, we think the DARPA model um, uh, is much more effective than traditional NSF um, or NIH models where uh, you have program managers that are temporary. They think, I believe it's they serve five years and then they all leave. Um, and they have a lot of control over a small portfolio of ideas and they can take big bets and make big risks in a way that a committee picking what to fund often wouldn't. Um, and so we think having new institutions Um, with more control uh, and more experimentation is is the path forward for science because um, we're not seeing the breakthroughs that we were 50 years ago. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but I I think institutions are a big part of it.
0: Yeah, and I I think your point on lotteries is we we don't really know whether lotteries might be equal, worse, or or better, and the evidence might suggest they're about the same. Uh, But I suspect when I've looked at it, uh, you get a little bit more of tail bets within lotteries because if you have an off mainstream idea by its very nature committees are are quite hard to back those ideas even if you have one or two backers it's quite hard to get uh, a majority because they will be off mainstream and therefore likely higher risk where there's a more even chance in a lottery that you get them and if the chances are you've met the minimum standard there might be there might be something here. Um, So this is a good segue I have a question here from Tyler uh, that he suggested and he asks how do non how nonprofits should be run and conceived differently? Why and why has been the world so slow to adjust from that? So, for instance, why there's so few internet-first nonprofits, for instance? But it essentially, is why have nonprofits or the structure of organizations really not seemingly evolved as much as where technology and other things have gone?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a fun question, and I'll, I'll I'll talk about nonprofit think tanks just because the space I know better, and other lots of different types of nonprofits that I, I can't really speak to. Um, but this is part of, it goes into the decision-making of why Caleb, Caleb, my co-founder and I decided to start our own think tank is it did seem like there hadn't been updates to the way that think tanks in DC had been run. I think a lot of it's just inertia and institutional momentum. So, um, the reason that all the biggest names in think tanks in DC have been around most of them for decades is because, uh, once you get a core donor base, it's very hard to, you know, lose them or, or it's like, you, you reach a certain equilibrium where as long as you're doing a decent job, you'll keep getting the same donors to give you more money year by year. And the brand awareness is like worth it in the DC community of like, people know what Brookings is. Brookings will be here. Brookings was here 10 years ago. They'll be here 10 years from now, right? Um, so that kind of stability has its own value. But we thought, like, we looked at it and we said, this is highly inefficient. Like the way a lot of these organizations are structured, um, we think there are probably two main components to why think tanks need to change. One's on the personnel side and one is on the information distribution side. So since the advent of the internet, become, since it's become extremely mainstream in the way that most of us consume most of our information and spend tons of our time, think tanks are still weirdly like mostly oriented around like long white papers that are like PDFs on the internet or often like even printed out and handed to staffers on Capitol Hill. Um, or they do like on-person events or during COVID, they're doing webinars that have like very dubious value in terms of actually influencing the policy debate. Um, And so one of our things is like being an internet first and a Twitter first think tank. And so it's thinking like, where is the policy conversation actually happening? In in the US, it's on Twitter with media professionals in New York and DC and policymakers in DC spending tons of time on there. Um, So making sure that your content is formatted and distributed in a way that can be consumed by those like internet native users. Um, And then on the personnel side, it's really understanding that there's like a lot of bloat in think tank organizations and being very careful about how you hire full-time employees. And so we think that like the modern policy wonk or policy professional is really like a multi-tool, multi-tool athlete, meaning they're really good at a variety of areas. They're really good at the research. They're really good at the policy communications. They're really good at outreach If so they can talk to staffers directly and explain their ideas and, and fit their idea to be helpful in the context of a piece of legislation or particular rulemaking. And one, those are very rare skill sets. And so we're looking for like all-stars who, we have to pay them more than they might've made previously and they're hard to find. But when you do find them, like really hold on to them and then recognize that, you know, the internet has disintermediated a lot of communications communication shops. So a lot of the big old think tanks have dozens of professionals who work in communications, who are supposed to help promote your ideas. But the best people, like Caleb and I found this in our own work, the best people to promote your work is, is you, the person who wrote it. And if you don't have that skill set, it's really hard to teach or have another person come in to do that for you. Um, And similarly with government affairs and government outreach, um, staffers are in their 20s and maybe 30s. They like talking to people who are in their 20s and 30s who have done the research and are experts on the issue. They don't want another person intermediating that process for them, who's another voice in the room. That's how a lot of older think tanks handle this. And so we think by structuring a think tank around the policy experts, who again are these multi-tool athletes, and prioritizing internet for distribution, you can run a much leaner, much more effective organization. And so we've cultivated a a donor base for our organization that cares about policy impact. And so they said, hey, do what's most effective. Don't worry about cranking out a 40 page white paper if it's not necessary to the process. Don't worry about holding a webinar if like the webinar is just a deliverable for an external state. It's like, if it doesn't actually help move the needle on policy, don't do it. And so we're highly aligned from top to bottom for that.
0: Gee, that's really interesting because it's one of the small theories about why I do the podcast and why I think podcasts is important because people prefer to listen to people directly about the ideas. And perhaps this is sort of slightly wonk light as in we might not go into you know the exact details of legislation wording, but they prefer to people hear the ideas out aloud and transmit the knowledge of what would be a 40-page white paper, but in five or ten minutes of speak and then have the more involved uh, discussions and those conversations can actually go around and make more impact in a very resource light type of way, but on a very high impact return, particularly if, if the idea is really sound and you can express it really well. Um, and if you can't do those two things, then you're, you're not likely <laughs> gonna be able to convince the legislator uh, in any case. M- maybe that picks up on, a, on the second area that you um, suggested and working on, which I guess is the immigration or talent management challenge. And although I think this is kind of US specific, because again, in your essay, you point out about liberal democracy, very large country, you know, the one of the most influential countries in the world, and places like even the UK has a couple of elements of that, but is not as large on the world stage. I do think it's a kind of almost general problem, essentially about how do you get the most talented people or people with certain skill sets to the places or companies or organizations where they can most fulfill their potential and therefore uh, systemic uh, potential. And I think you'd argue this is the U.S. for a lot of kinds of people. Uh, but even interestingly, when you look at the U.S. and, and some of where it has got immigration, uh, it is often tied to a company. So you can get sp- t- sponsored by a company and get there, but the, kind of the company kind of slightly keeps you. So maybe that was good, but maybe actually you're not the most fulfilled at that type of company, but you kind of can't move company or move things to where you would have... most systemic uh, difference so in some levels that's like a a kind of similar sort of challenge that we have with some of these other things about you know the systems level versus the individual level. Um, I'm interested um sort of why on the immigration or or talent problem and what do you think uh, are the kind of things that we should be looking at here?
1: Yeah and I think you you frame that nicely talking about um mentioning that a lot of our current immigration high-skilled immigration system is tied tying individ, immigrant, individual immigrants to particular companies um, they really become like indentured servants in that sense where they, like their immigration status is dependent upon their continuing employment with this one company which is a really perverse kind of a system if you think about it um, and when people add, when we talk about immigration and that framework of importance neglectedness and tractability people often are a little skeptical of, of immigration and say like that is not neglected like lots of people talk about immigration in the u.s context it's a very salient, prominent issue. And I agree that the overall debate is quite salient and not neglected, um, but there's a subset of it, high school immigration, we, we think is neglected. And so often in the US context, there's a debate about what to do with the Southern border and um, uh, you know illegal immigration from Central America and from Mexico. And that's a whole different debate that we're not going to really focus on as an organization. We think that the high school debate has much more room for bipartisan cooperation. Uh, there's a significant number of Republicans who support high-skilled immigration. Most Democrats do. Um, and you know, people would say, "Well, if companies, this is good for companies, why aren't companies funding lobbyists to go work in D.C. on high-skilled immigration? Like, w- is this actually a market failure?" And to your point, we've our experience in Washington D.C. is that for companies, for the Microsofts and Apples and Facebooks of the world, the current system doesn't feel that broken because they get to they get to exploit the H1B process. And it's better for them if the the immigrants who come to the US are tied to those individual companies. And so it's really a competitive advantage um, and startups can't afford to hire the lawyers to help potential workers navigate the H1 process, H1B process. And so it's not clear to us that the current large incumbent companies are dissatisfied with how immigration is run in the US. And so we think there is a role for an organization like ours to say, hey, Let's think about how you know, how do we get a startup visa in the United States for entrepreneurs to come and build their own companies in the United States like other countries like the UK have? Um, how do we make sure that um, we are proactively recruiting the smartest minds in the world at cutting edge fields to come to the US? Again, the UK is an example here of um, going out and finding students from top universities to migrate to the US. Um, one last example I'll do here is that um, In the U.S., we have the O-1 visa for immigrants of extraordinary ability, Um, but it's never been clearly defined. What does extraordinary ability mean? It's an uncapped temporary visa program. So you really could, an administration could leverage that visa to bring a lot more talented individuals to the U.S. Um, But you need to have guidance for that. And so the Biden administration just a few weeks ago released extra guidance for that. We hope to see them use it as a much stronger tool because again, it's an uncapped temporary visa program. And then simultaneously, we're working behind the scenes to increase the number of permanent visa programs. Like, how do we get an uncapped green card visa program um, for, uh, for example, STEM graduates and talented technical talent? So that's how we're thinking about it, and we think there this, this a segment that's neglected that we we believe has high
0: potential. Sure, and that's interesting from the UK perspective. Essentially, a high skilled program has been or is being established and there hasn't really been that much pushback. So you think immigration is a a hot-button topic, and it is essentially being pushed through where people are like, okay. So that's actually been slightly surprising to some, particularly actually on the UK, because you look at some of these net migration figures and numbers and you go, oh, well, actually it's not necessarily low-skilled from places in Eastern Europe but you were replacing that with high skilled from actually anywhere in the world. And so you're still getting the numbers in, but it's with a, with a different system. And so if I heard you correctly, the three kind of ideas you have in this type of area would be something easier for startups or, or smaller companies like startup visas or, or things like that. And then something a little bit more widely to help stem green cards or essentially something like that, which would be a little bit more diffuse. And the last one was just um, if you have got Talent, however defined, again making it easier to come to the U.S. Did did I get those kind of three ideas right, or is there anything you'd want to add?
1: Yeah, I think those are basically right. I mean, again, for the U.S. context, you know, another way, another another way to bucket these ideas is like legislative reform and executive action reform, and those have their own different trade-offs, right? So, legislative reform is harder to accomplish; it's a longer process, Um, but if you can pass it, it's a much more durable solution to the problem. And on executive action, you have more discretion and leeway, and and implementing new rules, but if you know Biden does some, something this year and he loses re-election in 2024, a Republican could come in and change those on the executive side. So it's less it's less durable in that sense. Um, but the one other idea I'll talk specific idea I'll talk about is that um, currently in the it's now called the Make It in America Act. It's going through Congress. It was previously called started out as the Endless Frontier Act, then became the United States Innovation and Competition Act. Um, in the House, it was the America Competes. We're very bad at naming things, or the names are changing a lot, but now it's called the Make It in America Act. And this is mostly about a science and industrial policy bill. There's a lot of stuff related to semiconductors. And we can debate the merits of those things. There's some good stuff, some bad stuff. Um, but the best part of this bill, is actually related to immigration. And it involves an uncapped green card for uh, STEM graduates in critical industries. And that includes both master's students and PhD students uh, or PhD degree holders. And we think to be amazing, this is how you create the uncapped talent pipeline f- for international uh, pe- uh, talent. It's having uh, you know a temporary visa like the 01 that you use much more aggressively, and then it's having uncapped uh, green card spots uh, for STEM graduates. And so that's the kind of like getting the executive part correct and the legislative part that really can unlock big results for the United States.
0: Great, and would you wanna to touch on why you think uh, the United States, the US, uh, should be a kind of magnet for this. So you could argue that somewhere like the UK also has liberal democracy and, and high-skilled immigration. I guess you could argue somewhere like India and China have population power, uh, resource, and, and GDP power. But I think you make a specific argument that the US is still uh, the country which kind of have all three elements that you'd kind of want to see.
1: Yeah, I think. I think, yeah, the key thing is look, it's great if if immigrants move to Canada, the UK, Australia, some of our liberal democratic allies that we believe share our values and are on the cutting edge of a lot of different fields, but the US is really in a league of its own in terms of economic power and being immigrant friendly um, while being a liberal democracy. And we think that, especially in science and technology, kind of agglomeration effects are so strong that, and there's a lot of good economic research to back this up, that when you put a researcher or a scientist in the largest cluster of their field. They're just much more productive and physical interaction still matters a lot even in the age of Zoom and, and a lot of internet collaboration. And so putting that scientist in San Francisco, in New York, um, in Boston uh, is really, really important for increasing their productivity. And so it's better, it's much better if you know the next genius from Nigeria moves from Nigeria to the UK but it's even better if they move to the US rather than the UK. And so um, we think that, we view view the US as the um, global provider of public goods in a lot of these areas. And so, um, you know, research is not, uh, it's often hard to gate it or control it. And so once a big idea is discovered in the United States, it diffuses across across the world. And a lot of these tools or platforms that are built in the US are used by people around the world. And so if we just care about global impact, having the smartest minds based in the US and working in the US often is the way to achieve that. Um, And I'll just say in terms of China uh, being, we think they're the most plausible alternative to the US being the global leader in science and technology. Um, And we believe there's a lot of path dependence in technology. And if a technology is birthed and developed in an authoritarian regime, uh, it's going to change how the technology develops, how other countries use it, what are the values that it promotes, and we were very concerned about what Chinese leadership in a lot of these areas would mean for, for the rest of the world.
0: Great, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense in terms of the impact, because we are seeing in an intangible world, in a technology-first world, the spillovers from that technology are massive. I think there's some suggestions that the inventors of some of these original technologies maybe make 1%, 2% or 5% of their overall value and everyone else gets 90-95% uh, of a lot of these. Uh, so maybe turning to your idea on biosecurity, I'm interested why you would choose uh, biosecurity, which I think would be things like, you know, man-made, lab-made viruses and the, and the like, over maybe some other existential risk factors that people talk about in terms of say, nuclear war, or some people are worried about AI, some other people are worried about climate. I could see that you could say, oh, climate, a lot of people are are working on it. So maybe not as under-researched, although although there's a lot there. Uh, What made you think about biosecurity and and how do you think about uh, typical existential risk factors, which is a, a little bit within the mission statement that you have?
1: Yeah, it's definitely in our mission statement. That's definitely what we mean by the while well, safeguarding humanity's future. We're trying to accelerate technological and scientific progress, but we need to safeguard the future and not accidentally uh, increase the odds of existential risk or catastrophic risk in these areas. Um, so first, um, one area I'll start with that you mentioned is climate climate change. Um, that's actually probably we are expanding over time. That is likely. That's the likeliest next candidate for us as a climate and energy um, person to hire, and we'll weigh in on those debates. And so Caleb and I are constantly reading this area, interested. We believe it's, like you said, a little less neglected, but um extremely important. And it is tractable in the sense that Congress is often passing provisions that are relevant to climate issues. And so like maybe not a single climate change bill happens, but we are making slow, more quiet progress on that on that topic. Um, and I'll also say that there's a lot of attention from the activist community on climate change. But there's an underrated element. Uh, our, th- our thesis basically is that if we're going to mitigate the effects of climate change, it's going to be a technological solution. So It's going to be, it's about making major advances in nuclear geothermal um, battery technology to make solar and wind um, more viable because they're intermittent, intermittent um, sources of energy. Um, it's about having huge breakthroughs in carbon capture technology um, to mitigate the effects of carbon that's already in the atmosphere and Certain elements of heavy industry are just going to be extremely difficult to decarbonize and so maybe we can still use natural gas to power those small percentage of the economy, but then use carbon capture to make sure that we're not we're actually hitting net zero emissions. So we think those technological solutions are the answer. We think that if we overshoot the mark and we actually fail on climate change, we need to have geoengineering backups. Um, So again, it's more of a technological solution to the problem and you know all this degrowth mindset of we'll just like use less and consume less. We think those are basically doomed strategies that a lot of the policy community is still promoting. What we think is a mistake. We think that carbon taxes, while they're a perfectly economically sensible solution, and I would vote for a carbon tax tomorrow to help address the problem. We think they're extremely unpopular in practice. Referendums in the U.S. on carbon taxes always fail. In other countries where able to implement a carbon tax they're often repealed later by a future government so we just think that for the political economy of the question of climate change a carbon tax is not going to happen and we're wasting energy on it to try to push that as a solution and it's much better to subsidize um, and strategically invest in uh, clean tech uh, options so as you can see we're very excited about it we're thinking about it a lot it'll be an area for us Um, but to go back to, to biosecurity um we think that it is has a tractable moment because of covid where it's obviously important and it's been neglected for years, um, but this is an opportunity where there is focus on it and an openness to investing in uh, pandemic preparation efforts and new technologies. Um, and so that's why we are investing in it heavily as a team. And then for the other areas like AI, we just don't think that we have much to add to the debate. And there is in the effective altruism community, a lot of investment in that right now. If you talk to people who work in these questions though, they don't have like actionable next steps of like to stop, to reduce AI risk, we should do X. They're often just like, we actually, if you did, if you did X, it might make the problem worse. And so therefore we can't even barely talk about it in public. It's like an info hazard to talk about it. So that makes it very difficult for us as the boots on the ground in DC trying to implement these ideas. It just doesn't seem like the AI alignment community has enough consensus on what the solution is for us to be helpful in that. So we're, we're waiting, we're watching and waiting on AI uh, as a particular one. And then on nuclear security, again, also very important. I don't think we, as co-founders, have a unique insight into that area. We don't feel that we yet have a strategy of how to reduce the, the risk of nuclear conflict.
0: Sure. So that brings up two things, one on the carbon tax and uh, another on following up on the biosecurity. Carbon tax. So I recently spoke to uh, Chris Stark, who's one of the leading policy thinkers here in the UK. He's the CEO of the Climate Change Committee. Uh, and he agrees broadly with what you said, that actually there's maybe an over-focus on carbon tax. To your point, essentially it's not politically tractable, but you could get it via sector-specific ways of doing it, innovation, subsidies, and that one. So it would the, the cleverest policy people that I tend to speak to or listen to do seem to be following that pathway. On biosecurity then, it's interesting. So you're talking really about pandemic uh, preparedness. Uh, For you, is that things like having a quick ability to scale up uh, manufacturing and facilities and having the science and essentially having, call them agile, organizational structures and institutions ready to go? So you've got that kind of institutional governance knowledge, or is it partly on the science and things? Or or what are you thinking about the aspects of biosecurity that you think we should be investing in and, and, and we could do so?
1: Yeah, it's definitely the manufacturing capacity is a big part of it. Um, we're still talking internally and developing what we think is the optimal solution. But a big theme we talk about is like me- the importance of effective medical countermeasures. So things like vaccines and therapeutics In the U.S. context, at least other countries did a bit better than we did. But in the U.S. context, non-pharmaceutical interventions just flat out failed, like getting people to comply with social distancing and masking and other, you know, improving uh just fighting uh respiratory uh highly contagious respiratory diseases is not not that, that effective of a solution we can hardly get people to take vaccines and so um the framework i'm thinking about in my mind is we need our solutions for pandemic preparation to be less focused on things that depend on a high uptake among the general population we need to give people tools to protect themselves from future pandemics and so what that means is things like vaccines and therapeutics, that if you opt into taking them as an individual, you can protect yourself and your family. Um, it means things like advanced PPE, where instead of masks, you know, cloth masks being less than 50% effective and you really need everybody in the room to be wearing the same cloth mask, what if we had much more effective masks that were 99% effective, um, even better than N95 masks, um, that were comfortable and easy to wear, you know, not just for medical professionals, that kind of advanced PPE where again, if you're the only one wearing it and no one else is wearing it, you're still likely like mostly protected. Those are the kinds of solutions that we think are much more likely to be implementable in the United States and um, not lead to this failure where if you don't get buy-in from greater than 80% of the population, then your total strategy is going to fail. And so, yeah, and, that, and for vaccines, that means having platforms and um, manufacturing capacity ready to go Um, We think the Operation Warp Speed was the biggest success of the entire pandemic and not enough people in D.C. talk about it to this day. Um, And that's about combining private sector risk taking and government purchasing power and saying we guarantee and we know that pandemics are uncertain. How many more variants will there be in a year? How many cases will there be in the U.S. and around the world? Um, The private sector is rationally wary of making huge investments that might not pay off because the pandemic might end sooner than they thought or people might not purchase what they want to buy, what they what they want to sell. And so, having government purchase guarantees of saying, if you create a safe and effective vaccine, we will buy a hundred million doses from your company. If you create an effective therapeutic, we will buy two hundred million doses from your company of that therapeutic, of that that antiviral. Um, That is a, in our opinion, beautiful combination of government purchasing power to deliver public goods to the country and private sector risk-taking and innovation to actually figure, figure out what works to achieve those
0: ends. Sure. And I've had Caleb talk about advanced purchase commitments, these ideas, and they they have worked actually over time in many uh, therapy areas. It even works for uh, malaria today. There's organizations say, you know, you invent a malaria treatment, whatever, will buy $2 billion worth because the huge return is, is more than that. I, I have to say on a global basis, slightly disappointed that Again, if you could think about a global systemic return, which obviously we can't because we're nation states, then actually purchasing a lot of this and distributing it to the world might have cost you 100 billion, but you would have had a, a trillion return. So if you were the kind of rational economist for the world that you would do, but you, you couldn't gather together enough actors to get the 100 billion in order to see the kind of trillion is probably more than a trillion return globally. And so you might be right like if it has to work at the level of a nation state it has to be within the capacity for that nation state to, to for people to protect it and you can't rely on getting even 60 percent 70 percent 90 percent even 50 percent maybe of people to to go to it because people are going to have different uh, political ideas um on it so i guess putting that all together there's a lot of talk uh, about what i i guess a right-leaning thinker might call state capacity, libertarianism, that type of thing, and what a left-leaning thinker seems to be calling s- supply-side progressiveness or, or things like that. But when you take the label away from it, it does seem to be kind of pointing at the same sort of things. So it's kind of interesting that if you're kind of left-leaning, right-leaning, even, even sort of quite far within that, you are merging on, on some of these ideas. And do you think potentially that they have more in common than than what ideology would suggest, and is this the kind of a uh, bucket that you're aiming for being that actually you can get people on both sides to kind of agree because the game plan you know the the aim is what everyone wants, and actually the the kind of game plan shifts between the two even though they might label it slightly differently it, it it still kind of walks like a duck uh have have i read that right or, or i don't i don't know because the terminology seems relatively new for on both sides to it having having just been coined what's your thoughts
1: yeah i 100 percent agree with that and this is really this is the community we want to speak to and represent um, we have friends we're, we're friends with desert klein and, and people who read him um, as he coined the supply side, progressivism or liberalism. Um, and obviously Tyler Cowen is a, a longtime supporter of ours um, with his state class libertarianism, really do think these are the same themes or same ideas. Um, and part of why we think this, this moment is coming together, um, it's a lot of different reasons, but especially from the liberal and progressive side, I think we are finally experiencing an overheating or overshooting economy where, you know, in the in the US context, again, but it's true for a lot of other countries um, in the 15 years since the Great Recession. the um, most of that time, aggregate demand had seemed to be below aggregate supply in our economy and we seem to be just undershooting the mark and a lot of economists were saying that, you know, the natural rate of unemployment was six and a half percent. No, it's five and a half percent. No, it's four and a half. Like we just kept realizing, like, oh, there was much more capacity in the economy to grow and absorb more demand for the last that's been the narrative for the last 15 years is being surprised um in that direction. And now we've kind of like gone the other direction where we have, you know, 7% inflation, we have a rapidly falling unemployment rate and um, an overheating economy with these supply chain issues and just bottlenecks throughout the economy. And I think what as recline, especially on the liberal progressive side, but people across the spectrum are realizing is that um, this is the moment for uh, targeted deregulation and investments in supply side uh, ideas. And if we do that, we can achieve more progressive goals because right now, just pouring more money into the problem, more subsidies will just lead to more inflation and higher costs, but actually won't get us more of the real goods and services that we, we desperately want. And so I think, you know, an analogy here is that um, part of what drove, I mean, People think in the US context of Ronald Reagan as the great deregulator, if you look at the history, actually most of the most important deregulation moves were under Carter in the the 1970s. And why was Jimmy Carter so open to the idea of deregulating as a Democrat? It was because they had a huge inflation problem. I think similarly, this inflation issue we're facing today of again, 7% inflation will lead people to realize that, okay, now is the time for deregulation in certain areas. cost-cutting measures that make the economy more efficient in hopefully delivering a lot of these progressive ends that we care about achieving.
0: Sure that makes a lot of sense on that now's the time. I guess on a systems-wide level I read um, I guess maybe more left thinkers, although it is in the right as well, uh, talk about a kind of worry on trust and also polarization. Uh, Some disputes as to exactly how that is but the trust thing comes up, polarization uh, perhaps a little bit more debated. And then you have thinkers like Tyler Cowen and also others uh, suggesting that culture is very upstream from a a lot of these things. I guess that's a systems level thing, humans following their tribe or whatever uh, the culture um, is. Uh, To what extent do you think this sort of trust in culture thing is a challenge? And is it something that you think you can work on through policy or you just gonna have to skip around the fact that these do seem to be uh, challenges for getting things done?
1: Yeah, I think this is definitely one of the hardest issues to address. I agree. I believe trust and culture are more bottoms-up phenomenon. It can't really be controlled in any direct way from a top-down perspective. And so, um, it is as a policy person, it's 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 a harder problem to solve. I, I would actually go back to immigration as one of the the best opportunities we have here to influence culture in the long run. So, and this is really the history of the United States. It's, it's that. As a country of immigrants, we get this nice selection effect where people who move from, I was actually reading just recently about this is like one interpretation of why the U.S. became much more culturally individualistic um, and more oriented towards free markets than Europe is because the type of immigrants that left Europe to come to the United States are naturally selected. They're they're, they're selecting themselves because they're risk-taking, they're entrepreneurial, they're willing to start a new life. Um, That's still true today. That's still true when we get immigrants from Africa and Asia and South America, like the kind of person who's able to make it through our terrible immigration system is highly motivated and highly um, open to taking risks. And so I think by bringing more of those kinds of people to the United States, um, in the long run, they often have higher fertility rates than, than uh, native-born people in the U.S. And so I think a lot of that culture will, will continue to bubble up as we bring in new, new um, fresh voices and individuals to the U.S. So that's, that's one take on it, but in general, I would say that, yeah, culture is a very hard phenomenon to influence directly, um, and art and things like that are very important, but not necessarily our expertise.
0: Tyler Cowan also puts a lot of emphasis on the value of of travel, and I guess I have a question about why you're based in Washington, D.C. In, in one way, it's obvious, because that's policy world, and you can take a little office there, and in some ways, you've made the argument that you're actually based on Uh, based on the internet rather than a a particular place. So I'm interested, uh, is there anything special about the cultural place of Washington DC? And I'll also tag on, do you think there's anything you've learned uh, growing up in Arizona or your experience uh, outside there uh, that you'd, you'd add into the geographic question?
1: Yeah, I think the culture of place is really important. So I'll say that one, we felt like we had to be based in d c for a variety of reasons. One, we genuinely believe that u s policy matters for the world It's the most important place to be doing national level policy and so this is the place to be. but you know a lot of people have takes or try to influence policy in d c from afar they're not necessarily based here. but we think it's much more effective to be in d c because it's not just about the internet it's the uh, complementarities between having a recognizable presence on Twitter and on other places on the internet, on blogs, podcasts, et cetera, but then also being able to in-person meet with people in DC and build trust and build those relationships because that, that is the culture of DC. Um, that's what was true 50 years ago. It's true today. It's that things happen in DC based on interpersonal relationships um, that are built over years and years um, of face-to-face communication. And so you need to be able to, if you want to actually influence the DC policymaking process, You need at the drop of a hat to grab coffee, grab a drink after work with someone, um, really share information. It's amazing how fractured and fragmented the information ecosystem is in DC. You get lots of stuff, not just from reading, you know, the latest newsletter from Politico or um, other sources, you get it from meeting in person with someone and sharing live information about how a bill is going on Capitol Hill and what your odds of success for influencing that process are. And so you have to be here, to have that in-person communication. And that is the culture of DC for better and for worse. Um, and as a person from Arizona, just real quick on that, I would say that um, it's helped me stay bubble a bit of, you know, people who grow up in New York or DC or Boston go to an Ivy league school and never really experience like what the rest of America is like um, really, really is something about like coming from a purple state like Arizona that has Democrats, Republicans, a little more conservative, um, I have friends back, friends and family back home who I can kind of test messaging with and be like, so how do you feel about this issue? What, does this make sense for your community? It just kind of gets you out of the East Coast bubble a bit that can help you remember what actually is feasible uh, in politics and policy.
0: Yeah, I agree. I guess there's a agglomeration effect essentially to policy. Policy spillover by being lots of policy people. But I do think having traveled a bit around America and just traveled generally, that on the ground being outside your bubble is really helpful if you can get it. Okay, well, I guess in honor of uh, Tyler, I thought we'd play a little overrated, underrated if you want to. So you can also do do obviously normal rated. We've actually uh, covered a couple of these topics but maybe you could uh, clarify uh, on them, on some of them. So overrated, underrated, carbon tax.
1: Carbon tax, overrated um i'm trying to think about anything i want to add to that i would just say that yeah we're extremely sympathetic that like as economists this is the best idea i wish i lived in a world where we could pass the carbon tax if so i would make it our number one priority for climate change but it is just not going to happen if you look at the um you know cross-sectional and time series data on how people around the world view energy prices and uh you know food food prices which the highest input on food prices is often energy prices like it's the most important thing like why do um banana republic dictators often have price controls on gas prices and food prices it's because it's so important and salient to people that's how they try to maintain public opinion that's why they throw tons of subsidies at it because people are extremely sensitive to the price of gasoline and heating for their homes and food on their table and it's unfortunate that there's not much room to impose a carbon tax that would increase the price of those things. Um, But we have to think realistically and pragmatically. And that means subsidizing, using more carrots than sticks and subsidizing the types of clean technology that create an abundant energy future that everyone kind of wants to move towards anyway.
0: Great. So uh, zoning laws or planning laws.
1: Learning laws or paying laws? Um, I would say overrated. I'm trying to think about how, how to frame the, the perspective on this one. But they are they are overrated in the sense that, like, you don't need them as much um, as people might think. They're underrated as, like, in our circles, it sounds like we get read a lot of the same people. Everyone talks them all the time. But it really is, like, at the end of the day, the most important thing. Like, there's the Haseya Moretti paper that famously shows that. If you did have restrictions on construction over the last 50 years in the US, aggregate g- growth would have been 50% higher. Like, this is just like the most important thing. And so um, relaxing zoning regulations is probably the most important thing we could do, even if it's politically difficult.
0: Yeah, there's an interesting thing about built environment, at least the outside facings, because there's a lot of debate as to you know whether that's better today than 100, 100 years ago. And people are saying, may, maybe not. Uh, but also we spend so much more on our interiors, right so we have a lot more interior value uh, Then the, why are we so much more restrictive on what we let people build on on the outside? it's kind of It's kind of strange, but I, I can see that. Okay, overrated, underrated um, crypto, maybe more specifically Bitcoin, but what do you think about crypto in general?
1: This is interesting i um <clears throat> I would say that crypto is probably still overrated. Um, For a long time, I was an extreme skeptic of crypto. Uh, I read too much Matt Levine. If any of your listeners read Matt Levine at Bloomberg, um, Matt has had a long series. He he writes a daily newsletter on all finance issues. Of course, it touches on crypto. And he basically persuaded me for a long time, like crypto was just speed running the last like 200 years of financial innovation regulation. Like they were just recreating a lot of the same utility, but also running the same problems of like, here's why you don't want you know, self custody of all your assets. And then if it's it stolen from you, you have no recourse from like reversing those transactions or combating fraud, et cetera. Like it's, it's there's a reason we develop the systems we did, you know, even if they have a lot of cost to them. So Matt had basically convinced me of that. But as I learned more about the community, um, started reading Vitalik Buterin's blog more, looking into the potential of Ethereum. Um, I wrote an amazing essay on Medium. I forget who the author was, just explaining why Bitcoin in particular is a better digital gold. And like you, if you look at the properties of what gold promises to deliver, it's better in almost every single dimension. And so, and then you just run the numbers and you're like, what's the total global market value of gold? What's the total global market value of Bitcoin? If it, if it substitutes all that value and a bit more because it's more useful, what would Bitcoin be worth? And so I think there are all these narrow use cases um, for Bitcoin and Ethereum that are compelling, that are gonna stick around. But um, If you ask me like, will this replace all big tech apps and they'll be they'll become decentralized crypto versions of those i'm still a bit skeptical because for developing complex ui ux platforms it seems like you do need a pretty hierarchical decision making process like you need you need a ceo who's like this is what it's going to look like here's what the team of a thousand engineers is going to build and trying to do that from a consensus-based process i'm i don't yet see the path forward of how you would do that. There, there are too many little decisions that matter a lot for the end user experience that I don't understand how a consensus-based process would work, but maybe I'm, I'm still learning a lot.
0: And we like someone We like someone to blame. So I guess that's You're overrated right. by the crypto bros, but maybe a little bit uh, underrated or, or at least your rating has gone up over time. And I agree, Matt Levine, Matt Levine's interesting. I think he's one of the most interesting financial commentators on crypto. And he's also one of the most interesting commentators on um, what we call ESG environment, social governance and sustainability issues through, again, through a legal and finance lens, which is, which is kind of incredible, which are two of the biggest kind of movements uh, within investment there. Okay, so overrated, underrated, um, the concept of rogue AI. Uh,
1: I'll have to say it's overrated just because I don't fully understand it. Like the thing, that, and I'm still, again, I'm still reading and learning about this, but like people who are, Worried about rogue AI, they run the numbers and they're just like, this is the most important thing in the world for anyone to work on, and like, it's almost like it's unimportant to work anything else. And I'm not yet persuaded that's the case. Like, I think at least through a lens of moral uncertainty, we should have a more diversified approach to like, some people should work on AI stuff, some people should work on pandemic stuff, some people should work on you know, global public health and well-being issues. Um, and so they had not yet convinced the people who work on it. They're just so bought in, but they haven't persuaded me. That it's likely enough or that there are solutions to this problem that are tractable or feasible uh that wouldn't make it worse that it's worth it's worth pursuing and so i have to say it's overrated because if it weren't overrated we would have a full-time staff member working on it we would be spending more time on it but um yeah i'm just not yet sold even though i'm glad i'm glad someone's working on it
0: yeah overrated at least for you otherwise you'd be working on it um great yeah. um animal welfare Super underrated. Um, And this is one
1: where, again, I think the political economy part of it is so important. Um, You know, the average American does not care at all about animal welfare. Like if if it's not their dog, their personal dog, like they do not care at all. But I think from a moral calculus perspective, it's super important. And so creating policy solutions that reduce animal suffering while being politically palatable is is very important. And so I'm thinking of like fake, fake meat, for example. Once artificial meat is tastier and cheaper and healthier than traditional meat, everyone will use it, and not for animal welfare reasons, but just because it's tastier, cheaper, and healthier. And so um, investing in, using policy investment um, to accelerate those technologies and make them better, make them happen faster, I'm fully supportive of those. Um, Those are the kind of solutions that work. Moral scolding and shaming people and guilting them in my experience, and based on the research I read, does not seem to work or be effective, especially for a very low priority issue for most people like animal welfare. Um, so I think it's extremely important. And if, again, from an EA utilitarian perspective, you run the numbers on like how many billions and billions and billions of, of farm animals there are, not even to get into wild animal welfare. Um, there are huge gains to be had from minimizing suffering in our, our factory farm conditions. And so I'm optimistic there.
0: Great charter cities or, or new cities in general
1: uh underrated not enough people are trying them um this is a very fresh conversation for me because i was chatting, chatting with caleb about this yesterday we have a friend who i can't name but someone who's working in tech right now who their entire goal is to just like make a ton of money in this like software company to then go build their own charter city and so we're talking about his ideas for this and i think within the charter cities community it's overrated to go to a developing country and get an autonomous legal designation, like saying like, the rules of this country don't apply, we're gonna write our entire own constitution and our own, we have our own rule of law here. I think that's overrated because the reality on the ground is that as a charter city, you always need to, secu- you need to be under, under the security umbrella of someone. And so long as you depend on a foreign military to protect you, you're de facto actually subject to their their laws or their, what, their whims. And so I think charter cities like within the United States or within the UK or within Europe, um, that they have the same rule of law, but they're starting from scratch. They're like, you go to an uninhabited area and you build a university, you build a new town center, Um, you get the incentives right to attract venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I think that starting from a clean slate is very attractive. Um, There are a lot of variables to get right. Um, This person that Caleb was talking about thinks the university is the key, like beginning building a a world-class university first and then radiating out from there to build the entire city would be one of the breakthrough mechanisms. And so I'm optimistic. I think more people should try it. Um, I think that the founder, Mark, I don't know if you've read about Mark Laurie, uh, his plans, he's former, he founded multiple e-commerce companies that got bought by Amazon and Walmart. And now I think he's using all of his money to start something, I wanna say it in Nevada or Texas. Um, I think that's cool. It's an exciting way to use your billions of dollars um, that could have a huge impact. And if someone got it right, then we could replicate it, right? This is an example of like, testing being experimental and testing the model, and then once it works, you can like scale it up to the rest of the world
0: yeah i've I've flip flopped on this one i'm currently leaning a little bit more uh, people first over place obviously they they intersect, but here in the uk we've had a lot on trying to create these zones and things, and the problem is you need sort of twenty seven or uh, eleven billion different little ingredients to really spark it. so I think universities are a definite core ingredient and maybe foundational, but can you get the other 23 things which go alongside a university? I don't know, but if you if you give people the autonomy, say through immigration or however, they seem to coalesce around the places which kind of need it and the cluster seems to emerge that way where the preconditions are, are maybe already there. I'm slightly more optimistic about reinvigorating cities which were definitely great beforehand because actually the remains of infrastructure are still potentially more valuable than we think because it's actually doesn't take that much to re-kickstart them uh, particularly the physical infrastructure which was built 100 150 years ago uh seem to be planned there's something about it which is actually quite easy to to restart that that we've seen but yeah i don't know okay a couple more on overrated underrated uh innovation agencies you mentioned a couple already we have um DARPA, Arpa. Here in the UK, you have ARIA or whatever it is. They all have these acronyms, <laughs> which are really hard to remember. That, but essentially, they uh, innovation agencies of, of some form.
1: Yeah, I would say as of now they're overrated, um, and this is part of um, you know, I think for individuals maybe shaming doesn't work, but hopefully for institutions it might work a little better. I think they need to be have more, be more self-critical, and there needs to be more public criticism of them. Um, because they have slowed down or become more stagnant or sclerotic. I I think this is the primary role of private science initiatives in the United States right now Um, with the ARC Institute in the Bay Area that Patrick Collison and others just started. um, There's the the Activate uh, initiative, which is about filling the gap between someone getting their PhD but not being ready to start a startup company. Can we like give them a few years of funding in an academic lab to really take a shot at their, their big idea? Um, there are lots of these private sector science initiatives that are great, and I hope they work, but they're not really at the scale to like make global impact, I would say, across a wide variety of domains. And so the real utility of those private science initiatives is to demonstrate that a model that works, and then we view our job as the Institute for Progress in D.C. to help take those learnings from the private initiatives and apply them to federal you know, innovation agencies um, and, and scale them up to the, glo- the global level. And so I'm excited about that. There are lots of principles and, and learnings that can happen from that, that that do need to be scaled up, and
0: we'll see how they go. Do you think it's easier to te- bring those learnings to uh, agencies, which already organizations which already exist, or would it be better or easier to create new agencies which don't have the hierarchy and culture that were already incumbent, but also don't have the resources and history which go along with that.
1: We're actually, we're still testing out this idea, but we think it's actually like a, a mix of the two, which is like creating new offices within existing agencies. And so um, it's really hard to start a new agency, first of all, it's just like to get the funding for it and, and institutional buy in it, It's very, very hard to start a new agency. Less difficult to start a new office. And then the, the goal is to get all the benefits of a new agency while keeping it within this office. So the idea is like, for example, the CDC has not done great during the pandemic. It'd be, it'd be nice if we had a, cause it's a bit more of a research academic agency than it is actually a public health controlling uh, uh, diseases kind of agency. So if we had an office that, you know, the CDC is based in Atlanta, Georgia in the United States. Um, if they had a different office in a different city, with its own leadership structure, its own incentives starting from scratch. It was about like surveil- surveillance of new viruses. And they were investing in like wastewater surveillance and all sorts of like ambient technology for monitoring new diseases and you know kickstarting the, the counteracting process once we've identified a new virus. That would be great. And so I think, and then that small office could grow over time. And then maybe in the longer, maybe 25 years from now, that office is actually more important than the parent organization and it's like disrupted internally um, the larger organization to where it actually it matters more. Um, but that's the model we think would actually work and like not radically disrupt the current equilibrium because again, in DC, the status quo has a lot of stakeholders who don't want to see much change, and so you need to be very subtle and careful with how you uh, upset that equilibrium.
0: I haven't heard that idea but instinctively that I think could work and I see it reflected in private business right so Google Alphabet creates Waymo for cars it's probably well it looks like it was easier to do that than than necessarily they start a whole new venture so they can piggyback off that but it you know it's operating a lot or even you know you think about Stripe got a lot of different ventures but they have something like Stripe Press I mean essentially that's kind of publishing right with a lot of different things and that but it's within the kind of Stripe umbrella. And so you can get a lot of benefits from that. So yeah, I do see that. Okay, last one on overrated, underweighted, remote working.
1: Remote work, Um, I'm going to go overrated. Um, I used to be even more skeptical of it. I would say that I've been surprised by the pandemic, how well it's gone. Someone pointed out recently that if you read quarterly earnings reports for the last two years of private companies, Uh, private sector companies, these are public companies, obviously, um, that none of them mention, like, we're doing really poorly this quarter because remote work has been harder than we expected. They're all mentioning, like, supply chain issues and dealing with inflation and things like that. But no one's saying, like, our workforce is surprisingly unproductive based on remote work. We're trying our best to, like, get them back in the office as soon as possible. If anything, it's the other direction. It's we've constantly just been delaying, delaying, delaying return to office, which if it weren't going well, you wouldn't really see that, I don't think. Um, And so it's gone better than I thought, but I still think in the long run, I still think it's overrated because agglomeration effects matter so much. I think for running a scaled, mature business, it's possible to do remote work because you're just like implementing processes that are already in place. But for doing any kind of zero to one innovation, um, it really is about like late nights in the office, team camaraderie, building that culture, sharing ideas, chance innovation, things like that that I think you just can't replicate over Zoom. And so I'm very worried about like, you know, 10 years ago, there'd be a team of small, of people at Google, a team of engineers working on an issue. They'd realize like, oh, this is a better idea for a startup. We should like leave Google together. You need like high trust to make that decision to like leave an incumbent and go do a startup. I don't think you can build that level of trust over Zoom. Like the reason Caleb Watney and I left our previous Think Tank, start our own Think Tank, is because we've been friends for multiple years. We've been in the office every day together, spending hours a day working on policy issues, we developed high trust with each other. And we thought like, this is a person who could be a co-founder for a new institution with me. And so I think that kind of thing is what we're losing with remote work. And it's hard. I don't see yet how the internet can replace that um, fully.
0: Yeah, there there is these debates. So I think for instance, Jamie Dimon, CEO of JP Morgan has been on the record with this, that actually, you know, you can get some benefits, but he would still like uh, some more people in, in the office. And some of the more creative R&D type industries, for instance, I heard uh, the CEO of Roche, Severin one, say similar, that you need some sort of office culture because of this creativity and, and the trust uh, the trust needed, albeit you can get some advantages, some, some of the remote work. So it'll be interesting uh, to see how that goes. Okay, so last uh, couple of questions here. So we, you talked about uh, policy ideas which are tractable and uh, and obviously in, in your areas of expertise, uh, but I was going to propose if you had maybe one, two or three or however many you might like, uh, a policy uh, idea it could be in your area, but it could be outside your area, but does not necessarily be tractable. So this is kind of your magic policy um, ideas. Uh, what would be the one or two that you would suggest is like, OK, I know this is kind of crazy impossible now because no one really likes it or we don't really have the, the things for it. And it might be a kind of tail ideas. It might not even really work or things. But this is the kind of left field one that I would want uh, people to explore.
1: Hmm. Let me take a second to think about that. Crazy idea,
0: left field, not tractable. It <laughs> doesn't that have to be necessarily crazy, but it's just not necessarily Uh, tractable. So that's, you know, you're working on these tractable ones. Uh, So I guess this has come from, you know, these are the lessons that science fiction can teach us, or these are the lessons that art and creativity can teach us, because science fiction tells us, oh, well, that's sort of impossible, or you think it's impossible, but there are lessons to be learned by imagining something which isn't viable now, or doesn't seem to be viable, but actually has the germs of the catalyst of. Uh, of an idea so i thought i'd post it don't have to have anything but i just thought you know what i came across this idea and i just know it wouldn't be possible but uh this is something that science fiction tells me or this is something that uh, i just think would be worth exploring even though i wouldn't be able to get any mainstream funding to do it because it's it's just not there this is something you need to put in your lottery application because your committee is going to reject it but you've got a one in a hundred chance that you get a second chance
1: yeah maybe i'll go uh, I'll go for space exploration issues. Um, something fascinating that I learned recently was that, uh, like NASA and space exploration, weren't even popular. Like people think about like the golden age of space exploration. It's like the 50s and 60s, right? Of like going to the moon for the first time, and this is the heyday of NASA. I saw polling recently that like it wasn't even popular back then. Like it was more of an elite project. I think like if you ask people in the public, like should we be spending this much money on Space exploration, relative to other issues of national importance, it pulled extremely poorly. Um, and then, of course, today there's a lot of narratives around billionaires going to space, and we need to first solve poverty um, and healthcare inequalities, et cetera, et cetera, before we do anything in space. And I think both for EA reasons of like you know colonizing the galaxy and spreading out and being uh, a multiplanetary species, it's important. I also think it's important from like an optimistic vision-setting perspective of we're it's the final frontier, right? Of we've explored most of the uh, most of Earth, now it's time to explore um, other planets and stars. And so I think a massive investment in interplanetary travel um, technologies to enable that. The James Webb Space Telescope, super inspiring, very cool to see NASA successfully so far uh, get that off the ground. Um, but if I'm being realistic, I don't think it's tractable because I think it would be politically unstable to invest that kind of money. I think people are too narrow-minded about a lot of these issues and they wouldn't see the value in it. And so I I don't advocate for it uh, in my work because um, I think not not, not enough people share my interest in like seeing us achieve these great things that people would say this is a waste of money or time. Um, And so it's unfortunate.
0: Uh, I can see that. I'd, I'd vote for it. I'd probably go for oceans before space, mm, but I actually, I would do oceans and then space, just because oceans are slightly nearer and we still, you know, whatever it is, what's it called, the Mariana Trench, we, we know nothing about it. So there's a, true. there's a lot that we don't know here, but it's the same idea that this exploration uh, uh, frontier is probably as expensive to do oceans as space, actually, so I, I'm not sure you get uh, the cost saving. Uh, I flip flop on these on these around. The, the two I have in my mind at the moment, one is actually Patrick Collinson has written a little bit about this. One is really exploring uh, a different way of teaching and learning. And my untractable policy would be, say in the UK or in the US, you uh, you give an open kind of lottery to uh, if you are if you are this person, we are going to give you a one percent chance to that if you want to have um, three or four person small group learning with a, I call them an elite set of teachers, but a a set of teachers or tutors who we know who are meant to be really good. I don't know, but you you gather together these set of teachers and you gather an obviously self-selecting group of students who like, okay, we're gonna forget traditional school and we're just gonna go into these three or four groups and we're going to learn in a completely different way, probably off curriculum, so we'll learn about whatever this group wants to learn. Can you get like a 10x or 100x um, uh, return from these type of people, because you've just something radical, which actually is kind of how we learned 200 years ago when you had this kind of governor-elite type of system, and then we went sort of mass-produced. You know Is there something which would spark essentially more uh, breakthrough or very different ideas, because they've come through a very different way of learning? And I see that because you see some so many of these kind of home educated self-educated or differently educated type of people seem to be making more of these breakthroughs and even if it's a small percentage if you can up them 10x then then maybe that's something obviously yeah it's it, completely untractable no, but something I, I to love it. it I mean
1: yeah it's not just not, it's not even just like we observe these kind of atypical people being really successful and there's the famous finding: it's the bloom two sigma phenomenon that if you do, yeah, one-on-one tutoring, you can get two sigma better results in terms of learning for that student. I don't know how much has been replicated or how scalable it would be, but like the idea being, yeah, that this one-on-one tutoring can really unlock huge gains. The other one that I'm fascinated with that seems very replicable, but underutilizes um, space repetition. Mm-hmm. So, so many fields, like creativity happens once you've mastered all the basics and got to the frontier, and then you're combining new ideas from different places. But I think rote memorization actually is kind of underrated at this point. And the importance to just remember a large body of knowledge to help you get to the frontier, it matters a lot. And space repetition of like, it's like flashcard systems that you know you do it every day and then every other day and then every well, once a week and then once a month and you're accumulating lots of knowledge very easily is an underleveraged tool that I'm surprised people don't talk about as I would pair it with one-on-one tutoring as like the two most underrated ideas in the field of education based on what I know.
0: Yeah, so uh, Nintil has done uh, some essays looking at that. So the uh, Benjamin Bloom mastery has been replicated, but with not uh, not quite as strong as effect as when Mm. uh, um, he did it. But it still seems to be um, apparent. And particularly, although this is contested, when you can also essentially how to do it when you use this other principle of following the child's interest, so this, this we, we sort of know in fact it's obvious to anyone if you're curious about something genuinely you learn 10x better than if you're not interested so if you compare that with it this is why you kind of go off curriculum because if you've got something boring in the curriculum why do it because you're 10 less productivity but if you find something adjacent so you get 10x better and then you compound that then you do seem to get it but again nothing which you could uh Nothing which you could necessarily explore. And space repetition is definitely um, uh, robust, has been robust and um, seemingly, uh, seemingly repeated. Um, that and actually if you combine it with kind of memory palaces as well, I think you can get really good, good games. My, my last one on the kind of crazy idea, although this is slightly more UK specific, though you could do it everywhere. So in the UK, you have uh, an NHS number. So in the US, you could almost do it via social security. But I think that if we were somehow prepared to do population health based on our NHS number or social security number, so you can pull that data together and actually get preventative algorithms, so you, you know certain things, you could get huge gains in uh, population health. But no one is as yet prepared to go, uh, to go down that. But I, I think it might actually come. So it's maybe on the cuffs of being uh, tractable because it's more of a political economy issue. But at some point, people will just go, look, we can't pay for this much healthcare. It's a sort of cost disease, but it's not. It's just basically, if you've got good innovation, we're, we're going to be prepared to pay for it. And a lot of health doesn't, doesn't scale in that same sort of way. But population health digitally managed uh, would scale, but we haven't, uh, we haven't yet gone down there. But I don't know, maybe one day.
1: Yeah. In a, previous, in a previous policy life, I was often involved in the um, privacy regulation fights in the United States. Um, I don't really work on that anymore, but the privacy hawks must be defeated. I think it's a very toxic element of the US policy conversation. A lot of people have very vague concerns about privacy. that I think get exploited by privacy professional privacy advocates to stymie a lot of innovations like the one you're talking about with, with biomedical innovation. Um, and really, yeah, this vague sense of concern gets used against the public to you kind of fear mongering, I would say. Yeah, um, and I, won't, I only use such extreme language because I think the costs are so high. I think that we really do miss out on these huge breakthroughs because people get too concerned about it being um, uh, demagogued against them.
0: Yeah, I think they prey on people's fears. I mean, again, I'm not an expert, but the work I've read has shown that, for instance, in Europe, we have the nickname is GPDR. So it's around email privacy. And it's not done what they would hope yet it's a lot higher cost. Uh, essentially, you know, big organizations comply, the rogue organizations are still rogue, and so you haven't, you haven't, really, uh, you haven't really changed very much. And I think the other flip side is the, the average person, or more than average person, 99% of people who aren't involved either in thinking about policy or thinking about it d- d- deeply, have essentially freely given all of their data to Google anyway. Um, and Mostly don't care. I mean, obviously there is a sum, but it's actually really, really small minority. Unless you make them fear for how it fear for how it's used, uh, and so and obviously you've got to trade off the other side with the with the benefits. But again, this is this is one of the things. Okay, so coming to the last question, uh, which I guess is along these themes, is uh, what advice would you have uh, for people? I guess this can come in two kind of buckets. One is any sort of life advice that you have taken the route. Um, that you've chosen about uh, what you would advise people interested in policy to do or maybe do, do differently. And I guess the second one is a slightly effective altruism one is, you know, how are you thinking you're having the most impact or, or advice there? But it could be anything. So free for you to say, do you have any advice on thoughts uh, you would like to share?
1: Yeah, for sure. I'll start, I'll go backwards. So on the EA perspective one, I would say in your own personal life and career, you should use the importance, neglectedness, intractability framework for what to work on. But I would pair that also with like a comparative advantage framing as well, where it's what, given your skill set and your experience in life, what are you most, your best poised to actually do do in terms of impact? And so in my personal case, it's that for the last five years now, I've been living and working in DC. I've been at four different think tanks prior to founding this new one. I've been learning a lot about how D.C. policy works. And then prior to that, obviously, just reading for uh, a decade or more about U.S. politics and policy and and really accumulating this like lots of background knowledge. So there are lots of other things that someone can do to have impact in their life that are way different than working on policy and politics in D.C. But me as an individual, I would be wasting the experience and knowledge I've built over time to completely pivot into an area that I have no comparative advantage in. And I think people should really reflect in their own lives and like, what are you poised to be able to do? But then within that domain, there are very different opportunities that are either low impact versus high impact or things that everybody else is working on that are neglected versus not neglected. Um, and really just be careful about that because how you spend your career matters a lot for, for improving the world. And then for people as individuals, um, I would just say people need to be much more risk seeking in their careers. Um, we have potential donors we talk to who are looking for new institutions to fund. And they think that right now the main bottleneck is not money. It's actually talent and scalable institutions, scalable organizations. Um, and we, we look around and we see that a lot of people we know in DC don't, they seem too risk averse. They're like comfortable where they're at. And maybe that's a way of optimizing your own like personal utility. Um, but I think The world needs new organizations, needs new institutions, and uh, it's a maybe more stressful life uh, route, but uh, your odds of success are much higher than you think if you're the right kind of person. And here's the biggest part. If you fail, it's gonna be okay. I think most people think like their life will end if they try something big and it fails. But actually, as long as you act with integrity and try your best, most people will respect you more for trying to do the thing and failing and you still have your network, you still have your experience, you can get a new job. In the US, the labor market is very tight right now. <laughs> if something doesn't work out, you can get another position, it's okay, you'll be fine. And reducing that kind of fear, I think, is one of the main obstacles for getting people to try new things. And so I encourage everyone to like, pick the riskiest, highest impact option they're considering.
0: Great, uh, so that's great advice. So uh, do the things where you have comparative advantage, look at things under research and, and, and tractable and then also take good risks, which typically would be maybe bigger risks than you're currently thinking. Yep. So um, Alec, thank you very much. Thanks Ben, it's been great. If you appreciate the show, please like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.